0: Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with co-hosts Eric Johnson and Alicia Swami, and together we are Exposing Mold. Today,
1: we are here with Dr. Jill Christo. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today.
2: Welcome, Dr. Krista. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm a huge fan.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. So I'm, I'm curious, how did mold originally get on your radar? Did you, have a, did you have a health scare with mold?
2: When I first came on my radar was my working with Lyme patients. So I ended up in Southern Wisconsin. I'm trained as a naturopathic doctor. And here I was in this area and usually using naturopathic medicine, when you find and treat the cause, people tend to get better. I have the hardest working patients on the planet. They are coming to me expecting homework. I give them homework, they do their homework and often get better. And there's this group that just wasn't getting better. And I thought, I'm missing something. It turned out they had Lyme disease, Lyme and co-infections. And I, so I went to school for Lyme disease. I went to do the physician training through ILADS. And again, you find and treat the cause. These people we were applying now, oh, this is chronic stealth infection. Now we're treating it that way. There's still a subset of people that weren't getting better, and one of those patients, they found toxic black mold, Stachybotrys. Eric's very familiar with this. They <laughs> uh, found it in his home doing a bathroom remodel, and it ended up being all through their basement ever since they had remodeled their home ten years prior. And he had all the things. I was like, why isn't why isn't his ear ringing get better? Why can't he sleep? Why is the anxiety through the roof? Why is the fatigue there? He would describe himself as a glass man. Like every time he'd step off a curb, he could sprain his ankle. And now that I know about stachybotrys, all of those things make sense. His gut was a mess, pelvic pain, urinary frequency, you, the whole list. And when that happened, when they found the black mold, I thought, okay, I mean, I don't understand it enough. So I'm going to hit the research. And this is back in, I guess, 2008, nine, somewhere in there, hit the research and found a lot of animal studies on mycotoxins. No human studies. <laughs> And as I got to thinking about it, I thought, well, that kind of makes sense because in medical ethics, you can't purposefully expose someone to a known carcinogen, a known teratogen, meaning causes birth defects. You can't do that to figure out what works to make them better. So we do that with animals. And I had enough experience with all of the methods that I was using. I knew how to translate that research into humans because I had a comfort level of what kind of dose does this or that. So I started doing my own clinical translational research, working with this patient, and the more I learned, the more I realized, I think that's what's going on with this chronic Lyme patient, and this chronic Lyme patient, and this chronic Lyme patient. And so that's where the that's where the experience came from. And then we had mold in my own home, and that is what spurred writing the book because we didn't know it was mold. It duped me, like it does lots of people. And even though I was working with it, I knew. I would go on home visits with my patients to learn how to do inspection and remediation because I wanted to know. And so I had all of these resources. And as we we bought this house in the fall and as we closed up for winter, we were getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then the flood kind of revealed itself. And I went, oh, this is water damage. This is mold. I know what to do. So got my family and myself on the protocol, knew the inspector to call, knew the remediators to call, all of those things. And I thought, this is a privileged place I'm in. It's a very privileged place. I need to write a book and get this out. So that's, what, that's where I am. <laughs> so you
0: were really observing from the clinical standpoint first and had a case able to put some pieces together and then had your own personal experience. That's mm-hmm. interesting. One thing that I saw that somebody shared in one of the online groups was a post that you had made and it was about not trusting petri dish testing. Yeah. That's something that we talk about a lot, the different shortcomings from each testing mm-hmm. and one thing that stood out to me is that you were like I try to stay in my lane as a healthcare provider.
2: I do. <laughs>
0: and one thing one thing that I think about all the time is if healthcare providers that treat mold illness really do not submerge themselves in how any mycotoxin test for your body could not be accurate how any home test for your home could possibly be inaccurate how an existing remediation possibly could have failed because we know there's so many scams in the industry if they're not immersed in this as it's mandated to be part of in their lane i feel like they could just slip through the cracks so much when they're screening cases for exposure because they might just say Oh, your air test was fine, then you're good. Oh, you had a remediation, then you're fine. What do you think about that? What do you think about doctors expanding that
2: lane? I have a massive soapbox about that. And I teach about that in my doctor training course. We need to know our lane. If you didn't spend, I I used to think I knew until I went to all of these homes with my patients and I followed remediators around. And I followed inspectors around and I'm on the inspector that I work with most frequently. We're emailing back and forth every week still. So, and that every time I have an interchange with her, I think, I don't know anything. And I've had so many times where, you know, when you get to be known as the mold lady, like in my little naturopathic tribe, that's kind of, you get to be known as the thing. And so you get the, the referrals. And there are so many times where we could have prevented A very serious cancer. We could have prevented MS. We could have prevented dementia. Once one of those secondary things starts rolling down the hill, you're chasing that boulder down the hill and trying to deal with mold at the same time. Then you got to haul that boulder up the hill to get them back all the way well. And it could have been prevented when it was a little pebble sitting on top of the hill when we thought it might be mold, but somebody, the doctor, tried to manage the testing from an office who's never seen the building. Who's never, they don't know, they don't understand pressures of a home where I've heard doctors say, well, it was in their attic, so it's not going to affect their health. How do you know that? Like, Who says there are pressures that happen that can pull mycotoxins, that can pull, I was listening to a, a previous podcast and I had read that there's other things about stachybotrys that could be making people sick. That can pull all of these things through the walls, through the insulation and make someone sick with their indoor air. You have to understand stack effect. You have to understand all of these things that I still don't totally understand. So why are doctors thinking that someone who spends their life's work, like a Michael Rubino, like a Brian Carr, like who I work with, Martin Davis, like the Levy's, they spend their life's work learning how to diagnose individual buildings, because every individual building is as different as every individual person. And you can think you can handle that from your office, never having seen the space. I think that's very dangerous. So yeah, I have a big, as you can tell, I have a big soapbox about that.
0: <laughs> I actually worked with Martine Davis. I we must, be, we must be close to each other. I don't know how close, but I lived in Madison oh, and yeah. she was helpful in helping me with a dispute against my landlord. She like helped convince him after a month of arguing that these repairs actually needed to be made. But then she made a misstep because she actually helped clear the house after Stacky was found in my daughter's
2: room.
3: Mm.
0: And she said, well, that's typical after remediation. So she cleared it as okay for us. Yeah. And it wasn't. And that room hadn't been remediated and it was sealed off. So Stacky shouldn't have been in there. And the whole attic was chuck full of mold.
3: Oh, we did okay.
0: air testing to say that it was fine. So our lease was ended but the house was cleared for the new residents. Jeez.
2: And that's the thing that even really, really talented people miss it. That's how mold works. Even really talented doctors miss it in their patients. I've missed it. And this is what I do. <laughs> I missed it myself. So I think <laughs> that, that that's the trick behind mold. That's what's so, that's why it's not recognized. It's complicated. It's complicated even for experts.
0: One thing I really liked about your website is how you made a point to say like all these other disease names can actually be mold illness. Mm -hmm. That's something that we talk about a lot because I feel like when there's a situation of doctors not understanding how to screen for exposure or even understanding like a failed remediation, they can Mm -hmm. say, well, there's no exposure there. So you just have MCAS and
2: Hashimoto's and... Chronic fatigue, like you name it, all right. that.
0: Instead of instead of understanding how all these things are related, so I really like that you. I really like that you drew that out. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm gonna hand over to Eric and Alicia. Do you guys
1: have any questions? Yeah, I really love your just to go back to what Keely said. Your website and um, just right at the top of the website, you have a wonderful picture of yourself and you basically say mold related illnesses need a definition upgrade. And I just really wanted to discuss that. And what is it that you actually mean by that? Yeah.
2: So if you look on the CDC website, you'll see that mold illness it is actually talked about, <laughs> but it's basically spore illness. So the things on there that are, that you'll see is maybe some allergies, some postnasal drip, sinusitis, Hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, so hypersensitive lungs, and then they go all the way down the other side of aspergillosis of the lungs. So there's these two poles. It's like allergy or invasive fungal infection. There's this whole other spectrum. Mold can make you sick. Well, a water damaged building can make you sick, obviously, with more than mold. But mold is the one that I put a lot of attention on because I'm also looking at the intention. So there, water damaged buildings have many different toxins. The ones that are from mold have this multi-spectrum of things that it can cause. And in my patient population, their symptoms are from 75 to 80% of their symptoms are from the mycotoxin exposure. There's a little bit from the spores, spore fragments, and then that kind of like allergic mast cell reaction that can happen to spores. But the bulk of the symptoms are going to be from all the other things. So happily living mold will off-gas microbial VOCs. Mycophenolic acid, which we use in medicine as an immune suppressant for new organs. We try to have somebody as an organ rejection drug called Cellcept. Molds also secrete alcohols, aldehydes. And we know from stachybotrys, this atronone, these other compounds, these, these are large molecules that have very profound immune suppressive effects and inflammatory effects on a body. And then there's also mycotoxins. And the reason I worry about mycotoxins the most is that the intention, a mold doesn't always make mycotoxins. It makes all these other chemicals as part of normal, happy living mold. But then when it finds a place with enough humidity, and I try to always say humidity rather than flood, because people have this idea of, well, we never had a a leak, so we don't have a mold problem not necessarily. So if it has enough humidity and it has enough of its favorite food in that humid space. It will now, others will want to move in and it will now start making mycotoxins to defend itself. That's a purposeful bioweapon made by an organism with a consciousness. I'm afraid of that. (laughs) That's, That's why I put a lot of emphasis on mycotoxins. The spores, definitely. You get enough immune suppression, then you become the moldy building. All those spores can move into your respiratory passages, into your gut. But the mycotoxins are the thing, along with all those other chemicals that are suppressing you, and the mycotoxins are being there, being made on purpose and with intention. There's also actinomycetes that can happen in a building. I tell a story in my book about there was this really vegetative gross board that they found in my basement. And... I was testing everything. Like I was, I was trying to learn to not have as many mistakes. What is the kind of testing that was going to work best in, in an actual biofilm environment? Is it better to do a tape lift? Is it better to do a swab? Is it better to do a bulk sample? So I spent all kinds of money <laughs> sending all of these samples around. The remediators brought this board and they're like, oh, you're going to want to test this. They brought it outside. We had all our gear on and I was like, oh, definitely. So I take swabs and all the things. It came back completely negative for mold, completely negative for fragments, completely negative for mycotoxins. And we thought, what in the world? So the inspector I was working with said, let's send it in for endotoxins. And it was like 300,000 times safe for human level endotoxins. So this vegetative board was bacteria laden, and this was near a gray water spill. So it kind of made sense. So that's when I started researching that. And I realized that those act as antimicrobials, like an antibiotic. So you could be breathing air and basically getting antibiotics just by breathing. So you've got this whole concert of things that can happen. But where I put my really, I, I put emphasis on the intention of the toxin. And that's where mycotoxins get my bigger fear factor, I guess. <laughs> we'll say. Yeah. So I'm hoping with education, we can expand that definition. So I have this little math Thing that I have in my doctor course is mold related illness equals spore plus fragments plus chemicals plus BLCs plus mycotoxins plus. Da, 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 da. So it's a bigger equation than what we're giving it right now.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I wanted to just explore more of your provider training and what does that entail exactly? And do you offer a section on helping educating providers on handling hypersensitive individuals? Yeah. The course is all about hypersensitive
2: individuals. So it's a 10-hour, very deep dive, medical level, CME. So this is AMA, CME, Category 1 credits you can get. So if you're a medical doctor, you can come and take this course. And it is all about how to treat the sensitive patient. So if you're a doctor who's trying to figure out how to prescription pad your way through a seven-minute visit with a multi-patient, this isn't going to be the course for you because it's going to take some time to parse out the process, the the therapeutic order, some dietary things that could help and ways to support your patient while you detox. Because sometimes when people get out of the moldy building, they feel worse than they were in the building initially because their organs of detoxification haven't caught up yet with the fact that they can now start dumping some of this and they may not have the nutrients there, especially if it's been black mold or ketomium, those things just wipe out some of those detox nutrients. So there's some prep that needs to be done that helps your patient. Be able to handle even being in a in a nice environment. So yeah, it's ten hours. We cover mechanisms of the spore part, the fragment part, the mast cell role, natural killer cells and their role, and then every mycotoxin that we can test for right now. And then what is their special sauce? What is the unique thing that they're doing? I have developing tech sheets. It's all in the course. But I'm developing tech sheet handouts so the practitioners can have a quick and dirty reference so if they do have a patient who actually registers on one of the labs that we can do, then they can have kind of a quick and dirty, okay, what's going on with this mycotoxin? Where does it affect the body? And then what do we do about it?
1: Fantastic. Thank you for that. How mm-hmm. familiar are you with the radiomimic effects of mold?
2: I, that not at all. I don't know what you're talking about. If you're talking about frequency, I think that that's where... So maybe explain what you're talking about and then I can talk about frequency because this is my new favorite diagnostic tool. <laughs>
1: Well, this is fantastic that you're not familiar because this is kind of where our theory fits in um, that mold is not, I mean, there are toxicological effects on the human body, but there's a whole other subset of effects that are causing a lot of issues for people, especially hypersensitive people and contaminated objects. So this is something that we're actually building out right now as we speak for providers. And this actually would be really good for us to provide more information on for you. Eric is our research and education director. He is highly well-versed in the physics of this. Keely and I are learning as we go. So I would love to turn over the uh, mic over to him and have him explain these effects for you.
3: The uh, training that I had in the military included radiological warfare and how contaminated objects that were drenched in radiation would um, actually affect you in such a way that you could feel it, Mm -hmm. almost as a heat sort of sensation. If you get too close to a a highly gamma-irradiated object, something about your perceptions would trigger you to the presence of, of this radiation. And even though we might not understand the physics of it, Part of my training was to watch out for this kind of effect. Something that, as you got close to it, acted more like a heat source than a toxicological one. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that colonies of Stachybotrys affected me in precisely this way. In fact, a lot of people talk about pointing at mold right through a wall. Mm -hmm. They can sense it. They can point at it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have the conceptual framework of this acting like dust where it diffuses through a a room evenly, then it doesn't explain that there'd be no directionality to it. And yet people do this over and over. Mm -hmm. So what is it? How can they do this? Why is this differing so much from how experts think it should be behaving that they don't even understand when a patient suddenly walks by a contaminated object turns around and points directly at it and goes, it's right there. Yep.
2: I am one of those people, actually. And I discovered that by going to these homes so that I could actually tell the remediators. I was like, actually, though, but the mold is over in this corner over here. And they're saying, no, then we, that's that's not where we tested it or we found it. And I'm like, no, but it's there. I can tell. And that's where I got on this idea that there's a frequency because at first I was thinking, is it a pheromone? Because it is a living thing. A colony is a is a community. So, is it something that it's like the way they're communicating? Is it through pheromone or whatever? And I realized it's through frequency, just like with frequency specific microcurrent. I know you had my friend and colleague, Dr. Neil Nathan, on. We're both big fans of this machine. Every cell in our body has its own unique beat, its own part of the orchestra. And I was thinking, well, it's, that makes total sense then for mold. There are actually mold frequencies that we can run to treat somebody. We wait to do that until their body's ready for it because it can really rock their world. But why couldn't we be using that as diagnostics? So that's, I'm super excited to hear that you're on that wavelength because I was just imagining almost like the tricorder times in like Star Trek. We should be able to just take our smartphone and pull up the mold, mold sensor app and hold it over like an EMF thing because of course it's affecting our bodies in voltage-gated ways. Why can't we diagnose that and sense that? That's where I want to see us go
3: be so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we've been trying to get research into.
1: Nice. That's exciting to hear. Yeah, we're yeah. going to be doing some fun stuff this summer where I'm going to meet Eric and Tahoe, we'll be running some experiments. And again, like we're we're building out that that particular piece of education. I mean, it's it's super thorough and it's really confusing and we can see why doctors don't really want to get on board with it or they find it too complicated but this is the reality of what's happening there's a lot of inexplicable things happening with with mold sensitive people and i too am mold sensitive keely eric we all can sit here and tell you hey there's mold over there yeah. Um without having to smell anything or see any visible colonies and how is that happening and it's mm-hmm. it's extremely extremely interesting so yeah that's our our, our interest in our area of exploration Very cool so can that talk? you're it sounds cool that you're actually interested in that, too, because a lot of people just shut off and they s- still want to continue to argue the toxicological effects. I, I to an argument that Yeah, I mean, how do you tell if a heart is doing? Okay, We do an EKG.
2: We do an echocardiogram, and we do EMGs to see if muscles are conducting. We do this kind of stuff in medicine all the time. It's not woo. It's just not yet discovered and normalized. So that's really cool to, think, to hear that you're expanding that. because so I'm doing it therapeutically. But I would love to have that tool for diagnostics.
3: Awesome. What's really intriguing about this whole thing, aside from the phenomenon itself, is just how unknown it was. Mm. Back during the 1980s, nobody was thinking of mold as any kind of a problem at all—just an allergy. So, I suppose you know that toxic mold actually started chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. So, and then when it the, went when, <laughs> when the original cluster was asking for research into mold, this set off a massive argument amongst all the researchers, doctors, people the world over. They talked about every possible theory, toxin, pathogen you could think of as an explanation. Nobody came up with mold. In fact, it wasn't even until over 10 years later that the first time somebody tried to put chronic fatigue syndrome together with mold, But it was so unknown at the time that uh, this was in 1994 in the uh, Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual by Johanning and Dr. Chin Yang. And there's an entire chapter speculating as to whether or not the toxicological properties of Stachybotrys could account for chronic fatigue syndrome. So they actually pose the question are Stachybotrys specifically and chronic fatigue syndrome connected? Well, as it turns out, yes. That that was found in the original cluster.
2: It was.
3: Yeah. Uh, interesting. So that was that was the direct agent which triggered this entire controversy that people are arguing over the world over. Mm-hmm. Everybody's fighting about chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet if they just come back and look at what how the syndrome started, mm-hmm. it's all right there. And
2: there's been research since Dr. Brewer, his, his study in 2013 revolutionized my practice. I mean, I was using antifungals and my thought process as I got into mold from the Lyme world was, geez, I wonder how many people in the seventies and eighties that had yeast were actually mold sick people. And we just called it something different. And now we have all these other diagnoses, the missed diagnoses, I call them not missed diagnoses, but just MIST. Oops, missed that one. That was actually mold. And his study showing that of his chronic fatigue patients, it's over 95% had mycotoxins in their nasal washings, lung washings. There's, We all have fungus in our sinuses. That's not the big aha. The big reveal was some act really naughty and some don't. And the thing that tripped that trigger is exposure to a water damaged building. It's just like that. And so when I added intranasal then to my antifungal protocol, people got better so much faster. They weren't as sensitive. We didn't have as much of that, Get, go to a restaurant and have one meal in a moldy building and sick for three weeks after kind of stuff. So it was amazing just to say, yeah, this is related to chronic fatigue and it's actually in a study.
3: That's really unfortunate that Dr. Thrasher and Dr. Brewer didn't include in their paper that toxic mold actually started chronic fatigue syndrome. Hmm. Because it makes it sound like they just invented this idea out of nowhere when they actually, they already knew it. Yeah. Dr. Thrasher had worked with Dr. Shoemaker and read Mold Warriors, so he was fully aware of it. And I was actually corresponding with Dr. Brewer at the time he was writing his paper. Mm. And I asked him to include this, but he's, he didn't see fit to do that.
2: Well, and sometimes it's your review board. We did a 2006 study, Dr. Arthur Hart's, with the university of Arizona on chronic fatigue. And it was trying to identify all the non non-identified possible causes of chronic fatigue. So we had some of the zero like zero negative thyroid issues. So we were finding iodine deficiency. We were finding adrenal fatigue. And of course we found mold and we couldn't get it published without taking certain things out. Interesting. And it's so sometimes it's not always the doc, the, The person writing the article may have wanted to put a lot more in there. And we were down to, we had to pull out all of the things that didn't fit the narrative of the time or it wouldn't be published. And so we just did, it was like, then it's just going to go unpublished because what our findings were very significant for mold, for iodine deficiency and adrenal fatigue. And we find
3: out mold can block iodine. When Dr. Brewer made this connection that there was an association between you know, his chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosed patients and toxic mold, this didn't lead to any researchers coming back to find out how the syndrome began.
0: Right.
3: So that's when I started approaching mold experts and telling them, well, there's no reason for this to be speculative. You can just go back to how the syndrome started and then you'll know. And to this day, the CDC, NIH, all the major institutes are arguing about this but they're not coming back to ask us what happened.
2: Imagine how much it will cost if this is true. To remediate buildings, you would have to take care of your employees' health care costs, you'd have to all the things so it's it's frustrating. But from my my perspective of having to try to being in the position of trying to publish a study, which was just an observational study. We had actually it was more than observational. We did do some testing and things. It is so difficult to get funding, first of all, and then to get something published. And it seems to the system seems to desire the echo chamber, continue to prove the stuff that is already published. And then I realized, well, that like I said in the beginning, this is a toxic substance. So how are we going to convince someone to to purposefully expose people so we can do a randomized controlled clinical trial, you know?
3: And so it could get talked about that's the great thing about the original chronic fatigue syndrome incident is because that experiment has been done for researchers and it's all laid out in front of their eyes. Right. So even without setting up the conditions, they can analyze the circumstances and see what what happened.
2: What's your theory about why this hasn't taken off or been accepted? I'm a a wacky naturopath, so I can be out here talking about it. You know, medical doctors and say I'm a quack and whatever. I don't care. I went to medical school, to a naturopathic medical school on purpose. Not because I couldn't get into Georgetown, because I did, but because I wanted to become a naturopathic doctor and I'm okay with being outside of the norm. But for a regular medical doctor, I don't know that they have that comfort level or that ability to do that. But I'm curious what you see from your perspective of being the prototype patient, from being on the patient side. What do you think?
3: Well, I've been trying for decades to figure this out. (laughs) Because it's been a mystery to me. If you tell somebody a documented piece of evidence straight out, you expect them to respond like a researcher. Like I even came up with a phrase for it where I would, I wanted to make my position as objective and clear as possible. So I would say they would be interested in mold or chronic fatigue syndrome. So I'd say, well, I'm an inclined village survivor. Original prototype for Holmes 1988 Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, and I can tell you about that. Very benign, objective, non-threatening sort of comment, mm-hmm. and that immediately shuts down their interest response. I thought anybody who wanted to know about the health effects of mold, if they heard it was connected to a famous syndrome, they'd go, "Holy shit! Wow, that's mm-hmm. that's amazing. Tell me more." Or if you were interested in in mold, you'd want to know if the the health effects included this controversial syndrome. So it's it's like just anybody who has a natural interest should have responded in a positive way, Mm -hmm. but nobody ever does. They go, well, well, that doesn't matter anymore. That was a long time ago. And I'm going, why would anybody deliberately shut that out of their mind? Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a power and control thing. Where once somebody gets into an academic position where they consider themselves an authority, they want to be in control of the paradigm. And it's very threatening to be told that somebody else already figured that out decades earlier. Mm-hmm.
2: Interesting. And in the way I would see it is that just gives you more foundation, more strength to the argument.
3: Yeah, yeah this really has to be analyzed in the sociological viewpoint. In addition to the purely scientific one, because the way this has been handled from the inception of the chronic fatigue syndrome is not how people think it was handled. Mm. Nobody has ever looked into the incident that started the syndrome. Instead, delineating the outbreak made the evidence base a target to be set aside by doctors, academics, researchers, people who had a vested interest. In promoting their own theories,
2: yeah, that never happens in medicine.
3: <laughs> Lyme disease, yeah. Now, 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 of course, it's tempting to say, "Well, th- that's because you're too assertive, you're too aggressive." I mean, you you come right into an academic, you know, setting, and as a mere patient, say, "I can tell you about that," and that's, "Whoa, no, no, you can't. You just, you're just a patient. You can't do that." Mm. But if you look at the other outbreaks that were set up and are cited as, well, this is a typical outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome. So this is what we want to solve. Like Dr. David Bell in Lindenville, he had a mysterious outbreak, same year as the Lake Tahoe outbreak. Hmm. So this is considered by most experts, chronic fatigue syndrome experts, as a premier example of the entity that they want to solve. And I talked to Dr. Bell said, well, did anybody come to look into your mystery? No, nobody ever did. And as it turns out, it was sick children in sick buildings. Right, right. Schools, hospitals, all the... Mm -hmm. So what we really need, before we can proceed on to the science of what's involved here, we need to, to be perfectly honest, look at doctors and researchers to find out why they wouldn't be interested in what they're claiming to be interested in.
2: Hmm. That's funny. I launched a research study, a market research study, to figure out how to get the message to medical doctors. Because again, I'm, I'm an atyopathic doctor. I have no clout in the medical system. It's just one of them described me as hippy-dippy, another woo, all this kind of stuff. And so many times as they were reviewing my material, where I talk about the limitation of research, not soon enough. I learned that. You have to talk about that limitation right away. They were discounting everything that I was saying. And then when we put the limitations of the research on top, then they had an ear. But then the comment was, well, yeah, we know it needs a definition upgrade. mold related illness needs a definition upgrade. Nobody wants to find it because you can't do anything about it. And I thought, that's what I'm here to change. That's what I and my colleagues, all of us that are out here trying to educate about mold-related illness. Like Dr. Nathan and I are working with doctors in a mentorship program. I have my training course. We're trying to expand people's acceptance of it by expanding their competence. Because I think there's a fear as a doctor, you're supposed to be the saver. And if you don't know what to do about it, you're not going to see it.
1: I love that. Thank you so much. Hello everyone, Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this, who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold Guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like SIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consults here at themoldguyinc.com connect. That's themoldguyinc.com c-o-n-n-e-c-t. And I'm just curious, what's your opinion on Dr. Shoemaker's sort of reversal out of mold and more into a ten of my CDs? I I don't know that I have a super
2: big opinion about it. I think it's something that just expands our awareness of all of the things you can get into in a water-damaged building. So I think in those some cases where people, their mold wasn't competitive, it wasn't somehow, it wasn't competitive, it wasn't long-standing enough to bring in the bigger species, the water-loving species like Stachybotrys, but it was longstanding enough where it was gray water where it created endotoxins and actinomycetes. those people now have an answer they didn't have before. So I see it as an expansion. I don't know, really, I'm, I'm not shoemaker trained, and so I didn't come up in that world. So it just hearing that he's now talking about that to me is not as, I think, Fun, fundamentally groundbreaking to me as it is to the people that were trained with him. I don't think that if it is an, an about face saying mold doesn't matter, it's only this thing, that doesn't make any sense to me because I do see that mold matters.
3: Well, Dr. Shoemaker actually directed me to tell people that the focus on mold was misguided. Interesting. Now, yeah, I mean, my story is in four of his books. I mean, starting from Desperation Medicine, when he identified the incline village outbreak as biotoxin-related, all the way through Mold at Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Mold Warriors, and then again in Surviving Mold, and then in his latest book, The Art and Science of Cirrus, he talks about the moldy buildings, which touched off this syndrome. Mm -hmm. And all this time, the focus was on getting researchers to respond just to look into this evidence, find out what was known which has never happened. Nobody's ever responded to reading about this. But then after the 2019 Mold Congress, where he actually flew me out to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to tell the story again of mold starting the chronic fatigue syndrome, they completely dropped all interest in it, never mentioned it, and instead of saying chronic fatigue syndrome is a misdiagnosis. Well, actually, it's a research tool written by Dr. Gary Holmes to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what Dr. Holmes was analyzing, clusters of sick teachers in sick buildings, chronic fatigue syndrome is mold illness. Mm-hmm. So there again, mystery cleared up just in about, uh, about 30 seconds or so.
2: <laughs> yeah, if you can accept it. Wow, that's very interesting that it's getting disregarded. For me, it, it's the full complex. And again, I go back to the intention, the mold has a consciousness. So does bacteria. So do all of these other things. There's consciousness behind it, but it's creating a purposeful bioweapon in order to harm another living being. That's kind of a big deal for me. Endotoxins are just they're just broken up cell wall. And actinomycetes, what they exude is an is a secondary metabolite. That's just from it growing. That's just offgassing. Mycotoxins are specifically unique in that in that intention.
3: Yeah, the father of mold investigation, Joseph Forgax, who was trying to bring attention to this way back in the 1960s, he uh, brought out the toxic qualities of stachybotrys as being important. And at the same time, in fact, on the same page of um, the book, he says, and we should also look into actinomycetes he found what he believed were elevated levels of actinomycetes in association with autism. Mm-hmm. But he also said that it had a very distinctive lacquer smell to it, which is tipping people off that there was some, some toxin there. Whereas when we point at toxic mold right through a wall, we don't have that sense of smell. There's mm-hmm. no odor to it. We can just plain feel it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mycotoxins
2: uh, don't have a scent. They don't have an odor.
3: Yeah, just sort of the acrid burning sensation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, my feeling was you stick with the investigation and don't deviate because once you have a confounder there, it acts like it's neutralizing the first target of the investigation. Mm. And for chronic fatigue syndrome, the uh, original cluster was pointing at the mold and asked researchers to look into it. But of course, they said mold is just an analogy. So they reverted back to going, well, in that case, just look into the room. Well, what do you want us to look for in in the room? Well, the mold. Well, we already told you, we're not going to. So their final resort was to say, well, please just analyze the air filters. We think if you look into the air filters, the substance will be found in those filters. And the response to that was, well, why? What do you expect us to find in the filters? Mold. We already told you, it's an allergy. So we're not going to look into it. Wow,
1: it seems like a cycle, right, Eric? It's just this just keeps happening. But I mean, I look at the news every day. I have a Google alert for mold of everything, mold health research, all that. It's like the stories are compounding exponentially. So we we're getting to a point where it's like you can't keep pretending like this is not a problem because of the liability issue. Mm -hmm. We have to come up with a solution here before everyone is mold sick and everyone is abandoning abandoning cities because we're having sick regions. As Eric likes to point out, it's it's good to have uh, doctors like you who are looking beyond and and acknowledging this. And it's so awesome that you did a market research project on doctors. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to know. You know, what do they
2: want to know? What do they want to know? How can I get in there? And um, I'm creating a very fast talking, short one and a half hour course for them to give them an update in mold-related illness so that they can have the language. And I'm trying to create a flow chart so that they can prescription pad their way through. And then this is where supplements help if they have a comfort level with that. Because uh, Dr. Campbell, he's treating people with a draconazole. I mean, they're getting better. So you can, it doesn't have to be scary. And I think they're very sick patients. So I think they're the patients that doctors want to just refer <laughs> go see the rheumatologist. And now, and then it's another doctor. And finally it's psychiatry and that's not treating anybody. So yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm getting, trying to get in the head of what is the block for a medical doctor?
1: Yeah. And I, and you brought up a good point. It's there's two facets to this whole mold phenomenon and it's exposure versus colonization. And we talked with, what's her name? Lindsay Goddard from Great Plains Laboratory the other day. And she seems to notice patients coming in who have prolonged exposures to these water damaged buildings where their immune system has been suppressed for God knows how long that they're having these colonization issues. Is this something that you're also seeing with your patients?
2: Oh, yeah. If I see a positive mycotoxin test, and what I do is I, there's a, there are some definite weaknesses to those tests. So the whole argument, the whole distraction by the insurance company and their very well-paid lawyers is everyone's eating it. They're drinking it in their coffee and they're ingesting it. So I've studied mycotoxins and most of them have, there's this moldy coffee. (laughs) Most of them have a 48 hour washout. So I put them on a three-day low mold, low mycotoxin diet so that we minimize that weakness. And if anybody wants that prep sheet, I'm happy to share it. Just email me. We're going to have it up on the website soon. We're just kind of are behind on everything, so that takes that argument out. And now, anything that we see in the urine is from their body or is actively being made by their own respiratory and gut passages because the mold is trying to move in. That's you become the sick building. I mean, I, I see patients. Once I became known as the mold person or chronic Lyme, but I was getting luck with chronic Lyme, and I was really treating chronic Lyme and mold, and people thought it was just. Line, they come to see me, and I was like, "When was your mold exposure? What are you talking about?" And I was like, "You have mold sickness. You don't just have line." When was your mold exposure? And they're like, "Well, I did live in a moldy place when I was in college. But that was like 15 years ago." And I heard that over and over and over again. So I came to understand, and then through Dr. Brewer's study, that was when it finally clicked, and I had sort of like backup for this theory that I had that if you've been exposed to water damage, building to a significant degree for your body and depending on the mold that you were exposed to. So it could be genetics, diet, stress, previous exposures, all of those things that can play into it. If you got to the significant degree to where we're seeing mycotoxins on a urine test or on a, on a serum antibody test, you are colonized. And that's why I've had a lot of success. I didn't see very many patients with mast cell activation and oxalate issues and all of these things that I'm hearing. Because I was using antifungals immediately, not immediate. I mean, I have a protocol where we get the body ready for the antifungals, but then I'm using them right away. I don't wait till somebody has an invasive fungal infection because my tools are gentle enough. I can do that. I can start someone on holy basil and garlic and powder Arco and all of the things. So that's, and then I read Dr. Brewer's study and it was in the sinuses and I went, oh my gosh, I'm not treating the sinuses. We add sinus treatment, antifungals, boom we can see actually people go down to a zero mycotoxin level on that washout diet and they no longer are hosting all of these, this biofilm rather than microbiome. That's basically what happens in my view is that you become, you become dysbiotic to the degree that you host biofilm and then you're a mycotoxin former yourself.
1: Wow. I really like that explanation. And This is a running debate, and this is (laughs) I see patients fighting with each other all the time because one group is saying Bartonella is the problem, another group is saying but Lyme is the problem, and another one is the EBV. And I just want to know your opinion on that because it seems like what we see in the our audience members and the patient population we also serve is that they have every co infection and every reactivated virus and bacterial biofilm issue in the book, and they're also reporting mold exposure. So how, where's the line that you draw there? How, how do you find causation? You know what I mean? Amongst all these different infections that are floating around and everyone's trying to point the blame on each one. And then they all have these, these unwitted exposures to mold. I mean, are you seeing the same thing in your practice? Oh, sure. These mold opens
2: the door, opens the door for anything that wants to, especially the things Where we're relying on a strong innate immune system, because it does reduce natural killer cell function, it does reduce our T cell count. These are things and and B cells. That's why we see Epstein Barr virus reactivation and chronicity, because the very B cells that we need to remember that we how we fought Epstein Barr and the other herpes family viruses, those same B cells are impeded by mold mycotoxins. So you have to relearn every time you're introduced again to another herpes virus, which is going to be herpes simplex, you know, the cold sore virus. It's going to be Epstein-Barr. It's going to be chickenpox, shingles. We see a lot of shingles reactivation in mold patients because of that effect on the B cells. So we can track mold and mycotoxin effects on the immune system, on mast cells, on all of these immune factors. And it makes perfect sense then why we see chronicity and reactivation of certain critters. So in the, I presented at the ILADS conference, it's mold and Lyme, now what? And my big point was, you can treat both at the same time and probably should, but at the very minimum, address mold.
1: Thank you for that. Just because it just seems so triggering because everyone wants to say that their infection is what's causing everything. And then once you say that, no, there, there could be a root cause and that's mold, boy, do people get upset. And I'm 100% sure you've dealt with it. And I'm just curious, how do you respond to people who get angry at you for stating that mold can possibly be the door opener to their illnesses?
2: Yeah, it's, it's hard because mold has a connotation that you don't take care of yourself, your belongings, your home. And if you're in a situation where you aren't in control of those environments, it can create a lot of anger, which is really fear underneath. That's people just saying, I don't have control over my kid's school. I I can't get anyone to test this. I don't have control over my mental environment. And so when we really, it's it's disarm the anger to really, I get that you are terrified now, that this brings up a lot of fear. Let's talk about that part and how we can, we talk about frequency how we can change this frequency of coherence with the consciousness of mold. This is where we make the biggest difference. You can become more resilient to those environments by not being on the same coherence. It's not, you're not welcoming it in. Do you still need to remediate? Absolutely. But then if you go from your, your sick home to your safe hotel room and you go from mold to mold, that's a coherence issue. That's you saying, I'm gonna go find because that's that's manifesting the familiar, because familiar equals safe in our little reptilian brain. You're you're in this scary time where everything is up in upheaval, or you might be having to keep your kid home from school because their school is sick. That's a lot of change. And so you glom onto the familiar, and that familiar may, while it may be causing problems with your health, it feels safer. And so you move from safe home to safe home into mold, into mold. You buy the new home and it has mold. You go get the the apartment and it has mold, and your second apartment has mold. I see this all the time, and so I'm I'm working with the people that I work with in talking about changing, like setting the expectation and the intention that you're going to find a safe space that heals you. But yeah, the anger is fear underneath. I have a question. Yeah. What do you think about the
0: idea of mycotoxins being in our system from inhalation?
2: Yeah, that's the route. So we inhale them. They are lipophilic, so they don't need any kind of carrier protein or transporter protein to to get into our cells. So they can soak right into the epithelial tissue, which is what's lining our skin. Dermal absorption is actually very, very efficient. That's also our respiratory passages and our gut lining. And they can just come right in. And I, in my upcoming book on pandas, I have a little diagram in there that shows that my, my kind of silly way to say it is that smelling is a form of physical contact. So when you're smelling something, if it has an odor, which we know mycotoxins don't have an odor, if it has an odor, you have just had, you have these little nerve fibers that come down in your nose. That is a bare nerve. So that will interact with that substance. And so it becomes an interaction with a molecule, which is that smell, or a molecule, which is a non-scented mycotoxin that will cause an effect in in that nerve tissue, but it also causes a local mucosal effect. And if you don't get an inflammatory effect from it, or if that inflammatory effect has gone on so long, it's depleted your immune system, normally that molecule then gets chewed up by your immune system. If, especially if it's an offender. but If it's gone on long enough, we lose our mucosal lining, which is our biggest barrier, and we lose our immune lining. So we talked about those B cells. They don't recognize it as an offender. And those toxins can just, bloop, just come right on back into the mucosal tissue. It goes from there to our blood system, blood system to the liver and the kidneys. And then the body is supposed to be detoxifying it. But if you get exposed to so much that you can't keep up with demand, then you start to accumulate. And I have a video on my website called Accumulation Versus Detoxification. The body can only be in one stage or the other. It's like a meter. It wants to be at 50%. Our body wants to get rid of as much metabolic and environmental waste as it's exposed to. So it's this even true north kind of meter, but we're always bouncing between the two of them. And so we're often in a moldy building, we're put in a constant accumulation state. And then we will store those in all of our fat tissue because they're fat soluble.
0: We call that process unmasking, which Mm. we can talk about if you want, but we don't have to. So, so, so you don't subscribe to the idea that all mycotoxins internally necessarily are from colonization of fungi. You do acknowledge that there's just some, some that are inhaled. I got a little confused when I was hearing you talk about the colonization. I think it's, when I hear some doctors talk about that and it's represented as that's like the primary way mycotoxins are found internally and it just doesn't seem like that's like the only, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me as like the only reason mycotoxins would be there. I, I have a question about contamination for you or like what you, your observations for what you see in your practice or like the doctors that you educate, what they're reporting. The three of us, we're so injured in toxic mold that we became hypersensitive the way that you describe, where we can walk in a room and we can say, "There is definitely mold in that wall." Mm-hmm. But we have another superpower. I don't know if you've heard this described. We can also tell if the kitchen table was in mold because mm-hmm. of how we feel around it and reacting to it. And so this idea of this contamination of items or this reactivity to even just one item are you? Are you hearing this complaint? Are you seeing this? Do you tell people? Yeah, you literally might have to get rid of everything temporarily, and revisit it to see if you react. How do you How do you guide people through this process? Because people are so hesitant to like unmasking to their belongings by taking like a concentrated break from them and revisiting.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of plastic and storage units, (laughs) and it it really reduces the fear when you can say no, no, no. You don't have to get rid of everything. You just need to move it out of your space or or get to a safe space, but taking things then one item at a time. It took me five years to open the last bin from my house because every time I'd open it, I'd be like, oh, I can't even clean it out because I'm still reacting. I still had my lung stuff and neurological stuff. And, and it was something that I actually, it was my diploma. So I was like, okay, I need to figure out how I can at least get a picture of this, get it open enough to take a snapshot. I was like, I really wanted that. And then I could throw it away, but I couldn't. It took me five years to get to the place where I could open it up in an outside and take a picture of my diploma. So I could close the plastic bin up and then throw it away. It's very common for people to say, I now am reacting to my curtains. Is that okay? Is that weird? And I'm like, get rid of them. If it's something you can get rid of and you're reacting to, just get rid of it because it's not worth it. If there are things that are worth remediating rather than replacing, work on that. And we, I've had patients where budget was no issue, where we were able to test, remediate, remediate again, try again. It was like antique furniture. They took all the upholstery off because they were reacting to the couch. Okay, well, then we need to get rid of the couch. It's not a healthy couch for you. We couldn't do it. So we took all the upholstery off, treated all the wood. It was antique furniture, so it was good wood, like mahogany that's very resistant to taking on mycotoxins, sanded it down. I mean, this is a real commitment to a piece of furniture. Did all of that, got it sanded down, when it was framed, set it in storage for a little while in in their remediation bin. I think they even ran a peroxide treatment. It was either ozone or peroxide treatment they did on this couch. Then the person came to visit the couch, and it was like, okay, are we good? Because it wasn't at first. It wasn't until it was sanded. Then once it was sanded, he could spend time with the couch. So then they reupholstered it, and he lived perfectly fine with it. But it was the actual topical wood. There was enough mycotoxin and spores on the wood, even after it was underneath the upholstery, that it was he was reacting to it. So yeah, I mean, I hear that all the time from people, and I actually. I can see it through Zoom sometimes. You guys too? Do you see that in other people's places when you're talking to them?
0: Yeah, you can tell when they're reacting, even just to their computer.
2: Well, and even to the space. Like there are sometimes I I run a membership and we're on, it's a lot of little Brady Bunch people. So it's a lot of little squares. And I'm like, and this wasn't even my MoldSick patients. It was on some kind of like business thing I was on. And I'm thinking to myself, that person's in don't to tell, time them time. Going, don't <laughs> tell? So do you find doctors are
0: hesitant to this idea of having to guide patients through this? Because I think it's so much easier for doctors to just whip out their prescription pad and, and, and write something than it is for them to sit down and like really thoroughly explain this. And then, are doctors even open to having to articulate that to the patients because it's like, it's not medicine. Do they feel like that's too weird or an item can't be contaminated? What's the general
2: response? Not, not solid. I mean, it's that they think these patients are, you know, that it's a psychiatric problem and that's the part I'm hoping to change. And I know with Chinese medicine training, is like this, it's, it's hard for us. It, I had to kind of get over my naturopathicness. And that's why I had to launch a market research study, because I had to understand how to get in the head of a medical doctor so that I can make real change. Because if they start diagnosing it and treating it, they will be part of the policy change that's going to really make a difference for people.
0: They have to really understand it, though. Otherwise, they're going to be advocating for something that hurts people like us. No, I know.
2: And that's yeah. The- and that's part of the flowchart is that if, if the person has this, this and this... And I'm trying to quantify with my questionnaire, give them a number. So have your patient fill out the questionnaire, get a number. If their number is over this, refer them to a mold literate practitioner. If it's under this, then you can probably prescription pad your way through this. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Where is that line in the sand where we can, because there are lots of people like Dr. Campbell, he's getting great
1: results and he's using itraconazole. It's interesting because it, I'm curious as to who you're going to be targeting because I think any doctors under the AMA <laughs> Well they get credit for uh, trying, it. To break, trying to break through that glass thing ceiling, glass ceiling. I'm not sure if you'll ever get there. More independent, like <laughs> you know, Dr. Campbell's more independent. All of you guys are more independent. It, it's a lot easier to get to those physicians. But when they're tied to their license and they have to practice according to this and these standards and even if you say these things you'll get in trouble it's like such a, a hard line to to follow right so your target audience or your target group of providers are more i'm guessing the independent the more oh, for sure well right now that's going to be the people that are taking my long course they're people who see
2: they usually have their own practice or they're part of a smaller conglomerate plenty of medical doctors who are taking this that are more functionally medicine oriented and do kind of have their own, like we have Dr. Jill Carnahan, like her kind of clinic, she opens her own clinic. She has her own way of doing things. So it's going to be people like that currently that are taking the 10 hour course, but that's a huge commitment for somebody if that's not your specialty. So that's where I'm trying to create the bigger change for the pulmonologist, the EENT and the people that are seeing the pediatricians are seeing mold every day but they don't know it's mold. And so we're never getting down to the bottom of it. And they might be putting people on suppressive drugs, and then you will end up with the kid with pandas and pants, or then you will end up with the woman with MS, or you will end up with the 50-year-old with early onset dementia. All of this is preventable. So yeah, and I'm I'm trying to rewrite it. That's not going to be hard. Because I think doctors are looking for a solution for their most difficult patients and the ones that keep coming back, and they don't have answers it's really fun as a
1: practitioner to get the answer finally. So yeah, I'm trying to like, let's just rewrite that story. I love that. Yeah. We had an interview with a military mom and her son has been permanently damaged from mold exposure and her doctor basically uh, diagnosed him with Munchausen syndrome or proxy or something like that. And right. just, how right. do you get to those type of doctors? You know what yeah, I mean? Those you probably don't. <laughs> you know, but those are the yeah. doctors that are covered under insurance. And it's like, how do we, do we need to go door to door, Dr. Krista, with you to, to <laughs> these going on? because I well, feel like that's what it's going to take. <laughs>
2: that's what I'm trying to do. And if they can get CME for it, that really helps because then it's sort of like, Oh, the AMA certified this course. I hear that about my 10 hour course too. They're like, wow. So there's like real science. Yes. There's 300 peer reviewed published studies. That's awesome. This isn't that, it's not that weird. It's just not part of their
3: education. Absolutely. I feel the quickest way to make change is to simply explain that toxic mold, stachybotrys, was the first clue in this famous and controversial chronic fatigue syndrome, and it has never been investigated. Mm-hmm. And it put a little shame into them.
2: They probably don't want to hear shame from an H. P. Doctor. I'm thinking, that <laughs>
3: Doctor
0: Nathan might. We can, might be we can have Eric create a little blurb and send it to yeah. you that maybe isn't so shady.
2: <laughs> but I also think resources, like that's why I'm creating the text sheet, the flowchart, the questionnaire, so that they're fully equipped. And the challenge is that the testing to confirm mycotoxin illness isn't something they can order through their system, so they're going to have to have. Something that fits the medical model, which is questionnaires. So the IBD questionnaire has been scientifically validated. I'm working to validate mine. And then they can use the questionnaire as a surrogate to getting to the diagnosis. And it can be something that could be done by the patient in the waiting room. It wouldn't take up any clinical time. They get a score and then they know they follow the workflow. Here's, here are your likely mycotoxins based on your symptom. Here are the tech sheets for that or the handouts. I have patient handouts. Tech sheets are for doctors because they're very technical. And then here's, here's the treatment. So I'm trying to create the whole system so that they ha- they're equipped with tools because I think that's the other thing is that if you don't have the tools, it can be a very intimidating place to dip your toe.
3: But at the same time, our sense of, of the radi- radiomimetic sense of mold coming right through a wall tells us that what they're looking at what they're studying is not the right paradigm. Mm.
2: That's a whole other level. I'm trying to get I'm trying to infiltrate the the other world, but yeah, I'm on your wavelength big time. That it's this frequency and you could it's possible that what we could be doing as well, not just treating a body through frequency, which I do with the frequency specific microcurrent, you do through your acupuncture. And you're changing the the frequency of the body. I'm curious about remediation through frequency. I think that'd be a very fascinating idea.
1: Well, we'd love to take this conversation off of offline. And and once we have our information built out, we'd love to talk about it and share it with you. And Eric has been doing this for a very long time and all the information is there, it just hasn't been connected. And so that's basically what we're doing. And it it sounds like what you're doing is really great too, because the providers are the ones treating the patients they need to know. Mm-hmm. And so they they really need to, Start helping people because, like you said, all of these progressive diseases can be stopped if these providers were just educated to find the clues or whatever these patients are exemplifying to say, hey, you actually might be exposed to a water damage building. Here are people that can actually help you. I'm not versed in that, but at least they can recognize that. And refer out and actually get the patient the help that they need. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. such a big thing. Now I see that you wrote two books, Break the Mold and A Light in In the Dark for Pans and Pandas, such a big topic. Is there like one treatment or one thing that is that you're finding that really is helping your patients get well? One thing.
2: <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. you be as
1: complicated think... as you want with the answer. I'm just... Yeah, so well, I'm it.
2: actually going to be quite simple. Vitamin D and actually being outdoors, connecting with nature. I think if there's anything that this whole thing is teaching us is to respect nature, but also reconnect. I kind of feel like when we're talking about, if you want to really go woo, we're completely confusing the mold. We are inviting it into a humid, stagnant, cluttered, out of touch with nature environment when mold is outside it doesn't behave the same way it behaves inside because outside it has all the other forces of nature so it knows its touch point it knows its role we are inviting mold because we are also in that same mojo we have lost our connection with nature we have lost our role and we are in this place of we're we're better than nature And I think that that getting reconnected, not only does it build your natural killer cells and improve their function and improve your vitamin D, if you can't mold blocks vitamin D, it actually down-regulates your receptors to take in vitamin D. So of the one thing that I think I'm using with everybody, it's vitamin D. And it's made a huge difference in my COVID patients. There's a lot of data on COVID and vitamin D as well, but not just taking the D, but realizing what that D is. What, where that D came from was being outdoors and in
1: nature. That's how we evolved and that's how we need to get back. That'd be a great study actually, because I feel like uh, vitamin D deficiency is such an epidemic issue in the States and even trying to do a study and seeing how mold and vitamin D levels play. That'd be really cool. Well, yeah, so it sounds like you're a huge, um, huge advocate for mold avoidance. I mean, that's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm outside and we've abandoned buildings, but you, that's not what you have to do, right? I mean, you don't have to completely right. abandon buildings. This is just my personal choice, but yeah, I mean, first and foremost, getting out of the mold is, is so important. And you bring up some great points. I mean, we're creating these very sterile, weird environments, and the mold is acting weird when it keeps acting weird, and we need to find out why. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> um, and then we're gonna we're gonna zap it with some EMFs, and we're gonna change the the voltage gated channels everywhere. It's just really Yeah. So when you were mentioning both books, I was combining both books as vitamin D,
1: but for mold, avoidance, 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 avoidance. Number one. Fantastic. Love that. (music) Kiwi Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. Many mold injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, recurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keeley's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families relationships and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com/consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N-S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. All right, my dear. Well, where can our audience members, if there are any providers listening, where can they find you to learn more and, and get educated more into mold and how they can sure. help their patient population?
2: My website, it's drkrista.com. That's dot acom and if they want to help me validate the questionnaire so that we can get more doctors on board, they can email me and we have a whole
1: process of how we're doing that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for joining us. I think um, a lot of doctors are intimidated by our nature because we're so hardcore with the questions, but you did great today and I hope we weren't too hard on you. And I'm just oh, really glad. I'm really happy that you're doing this work because this is just such an important issue. I mean, you went through it, we went through it and it's just hell. And we don't want any more people to have to go through this or even progress into these chronic illnesses that you get to a point of no return. It's hard to, to turn back and get well again. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. You bet. Thanks for your work, you guys. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah, we'll reconvene. And, uh, and once we're done building out our education, we'll we'll meet up with you, hopefully one of these days. Cool beans. All right, thank you. Right, you have a good day. Bye. Bye.